James Byrd Jr. was born on May 2, 1949 in Beaumont, Texas. Raised in Jasper, Texas, James Byrd Jr.'s was the last class to graduate from Jasper's J.H. High School before it combined with Jasper High School as part of the city's desegregation plan. Byrd's family was known to be heavily involved in the church, with his mother working as a Sunday school teacher and his father serving as a deacon of the Greater New Bethel Baptist Church. A young James Byrd Jr. also involved himself by singing and playing the piano. Although James Byrd Jr. was known to excel in academics and was encouraged by his parents, Byrd chose not to follow his two older sisters to college. Instead, he was married three years after graduating, eventually fathering three children before finally divorcing his wife in 1993. It was known that Byrd struggled with alcoholism during his life, working sporadically as a vacuum cleaner salesman. Between 1969 and 1996, Byrd was incarcerated numerous times for offenses such as theft, forgery, and parole violations. In 1993, Byrd and his wife divorced. In 1996, Byrd returned to Jasper in hopes of improving his life. He joined a local chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous and was known to the locals there as a well-liked father and grandfather. Many people knew Byrd as someone they saw walking around the town a great deal, as it was known that he didn't drive or own a car. On June 7, 1998, Byrd spent the day with some family and friends at his parents' house. He left the house to make the trek back to his apartment at around 2 a.m. As James Byrd Jr. walked down a dark rural road back to his place, three men pulled up alongside him in a gray pickup truck and offered him a ride. Sean Berry, age 23, Lawrence Brewer, age 31, and John King, age 23, had been driving around town earlier that night drinking and looking for women in Barry's truck. Barry later stated that he knew Bird from around Jasper and that the two had been loosely acquainted. Not wanting to walk the distance back to his apartment that late at night, Bird eagerly accepted the men's offer for a ride and jumped into the bed of the gray pickup truck. Witnesses would later testify that they recalled Bird laying in the back of the young man's truck as they drove east out of town instead of toward Bird's apartment. The three men stopped the truck at a small clearing in the woods where James Bird tried to fight off the three men after they pulled him out of the bed of the truck. The fight caused the grass to be upturned and the dirt disturbed, with police later finding a broken beer bottle and various other items that were dropped as Bird fought for his life. The men eventually subdued Bird. They spray painted his face, then chained the man by his ankles to the back of Barry's truck. Barry would later testify that Bird was deceased before they tied him to the rear of the truck, stating that he had slit Bird's throat before taking off. Investigators, however, later argued that many of the injuries sustained by Bird were consistent with his being conscious as they tied him to the back of the truck and began to drag him down the road. The three men got back into Barry's truck and began to drive, dragging Bird behind them. Bird tried desperately to protect his head by keeping it elevated as he bounced around, first on the dirt, before the men turned the truck onto the pavement of Huff Creek Road. It was reported that the men drug Bird for roughly three miles on the asphalt. The bouncing caused by the motion of being drugged broke Bird's ribs while the friction of the road scraped off his skin, exposing his bones. Investigators stated that Bird shifted from side to side to protect himself and deal with the excruciating pain as best he could. As Bird's body was tossed around on the pavement, he bounced upward and was flung into a culvert drainage ditch, his body hitting the metal piping. The force with which he hit the culvert, due to the speed of the truck, severed his arm, shoulder, and neck, essentially decapitating the 49-year-old. Investigators would later argue that this was when James Bird Jr. finally passed away, after having been subjected to the inhumane torture of being drugged behind the truck for more than a mile and a half. The three men dragged Bird's body for another mile before dumping it in front of an old, segregated, black cemetery. It was believed that they then drove to a barbecue. Police would later report that the remains of James Bird Jr. were found in no less than 81 different places along Huff Creek Road. The torture and murder of James Bird Jr. ignited a firestorm of media attention and debate about the current state of race relations in America. As two of the men, King and Brewer, were well-known white supremacists, the government determined that all three men would be charged with hate crimes. All three men had separate trials, and all three were found guilty of capital murder. In his testimony, Barry turned against King and Brewer, testifying that they were solely responsible for Bird's death. He was the only one spared from the death penalty and is currently serving life in prison. John King stated that he had become a white supremacist during his time in the Texas state prisons where he was sexually assaulted by black inmates. 
A longtime friend of Barry, King was executed by lethal injection on April 24, 2019 in Huntsville, Texas. Lawrence Brewer was a white supremacist and had served time in Texas for drug possession and burglary. He stated that he joined a white supremacist gang in prison with John King for protection. For his last meal, Brewer ordered an excessive amount of food to include chicken fried steak, a triple cheeseburger, fajitas, an omelet, barbecue pork, pizza, fudge, ice cream, and multiple root beers. When the food arrived, he stated he wasn't hungry and the food was thrown out. The food episode so incensed State Senator John Whitmore that he demanded the Texas Department of Corrections discard the 87-year-old practice of letting death row inmates request last meals, such as this, on the night before their execution. This practice was terminated soon after. Brewer was executed on September 21, 2011. When interviewed on the day before his execution, Brewer showed no remorse for his crimes. He stated, as far as any regrets, no, I have no regrets. He then went on to say, I do it all over again to tell you the truth. This episode is about the murder of James Byrd Jr. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark sides of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, this episode is about a topic that unfortunately always seems to have relevance. I mean, I feel like this is something that, although you know this case happened in the 1990s, I feel like the topic of racism and other types of prejudice are all over the media. Yeah, no question. I think that, um, you know, as a person of color, you, you can't avoid really having reactions to a lot of the headlines that we've been seeing. Sure. So, you know, when we decided to take on this topic, um, I knew that it was going to be, there's going to be a lot to it. In other words, I was really sort of trying to look for a way to put this in the context of the work that I've done in transpersonal psychology. And not only that, though, I think that it's also important, and I wanted to take some time, that there's going to be moments in this particular episode where we talk about our sort of personal experience with these topics as well. Because I think that in order to truly understand something, you kind of have to have both. You kind of have to have a sort of academic detachment where you can look at things and say, okay, objectively, this is what we can see is true or maybe not true. But at the same time, how do we engage this on a very human and sort of personal level? Yeah, and I think taking into account experience is very important in discussing topics such as these. So I started thinking about this in terms of a model that I talk about quite a bit, um, namely the spiral dynamics model or the Ken Wilber model, which would be to examine what level of consciousness these sort of racist uh, sentiments come from. A few episodes back, we talked about a potential way of framing psychopaths on this spectrum, um, if you remember that. Yep, I, re I remember that. Sure, and that, that is this wild, very egocentric red consciousness, very chaotic, right? We also talked about the next rung up of on the consciousness ladder, which is blue consciousness. Um, when we were talking about law enforcement during our episode on the Central Park Five. Right, yeah, I remember that. Right, which is sort of a much more communal sense of thinking, where values like fraternity and social order are the main thrust. Blue consciousness, paired with the next level, which is orange level, sort of rational thinking, which I'm sure we'll talk about you know, at some point, is what Ken Wilber and Beck and Cowan 
argue make up most of the United States in terms of population. This is where the vast majority of our population in this country get their values from. Okay. So it's they're very blue and they're very orange based values. We have all kinds of other colors in this spiral going on as well, but they're not nearly as powerful in terms of just sheer population. Okay. So it's these two basic forms of thinking that are constantly interacting and sometimes battling against each other on the American political stage. This is the the two types of thinking that we have. So at any rate, blue is a very rigid sort of hierarchical and community-based kind of consciousness that seeks safety and morality. Um, as long as you are a part of that group. Being part of that group can be a lot of things, depending on what the group is and what we're talking about. This could be the group based on things like nationality, occupation, socioeconomic class, education, or even things like race. As with every level on the spectrum of consciousness, blue thinking can manifest in both positive and pathological forms. As I stated, much of the United States seems to rest in blue thinking, much of this positive. This includes our feelings of patriotism and collective history. Many of our values as a nation, um, such as freedom of expression, things like that. These things tend to unite us as Americans. In other words, we feel united because we are part of a group with the same basic values. However, when this type of thinking is taken to an extreme, we get groups that are highly exclusionary, even going so far as to claim that those outside the group are less than or are our enemies. Blue consciousness can be very unifying, but at its worst can be dividing if you differ from the basic values of the group. Those outside the group then become easy targets and scapegoats for whatever problems come up. You know, and I I really like the spiral dynamics model. It's certainly not something that I ever learned about in graduate school, but um, I'm really drawn to it because I, I like the fact that it highlights that there are positive and negative traits that can coexist at the same time. Sure, absolutely. As a matter of fact, they they have to exist to coexist at the same time. The problem comes when we when one sort of denies the other, doesn't acknowledge that the other sort of exists. Well, and I think you know all of the topics that we've discussed thus far and you know as we go forward with this podcast, this is going to be the case that they're not really cut and dry issues, that they're very complex and that there are positive and negative aspects and light and dark. And so I really, you know, appreciate this kind of viewpoint. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear you keep talking about it. Yeah, sure. So, you know, in blue consciousness, like all the other stages of consciousness, it can be very useful in terms of things like nation building, especially as it deals with unifying people behind a singular cause. But taken too far... Those on the margins can become easy targets. Now apply this to a group who identifies themselves based on some kind of racial identity. And you have a recipe for a number of people to be excluded based on something that they themselves never had a say in. Namely the color of their skin. Blue consciousness, again, this is the pathological version of it that we're talking about, easily right. sets itself up for very absolutist type thinking. This is very us versus them mentality. There are a number of people who continue to believe in this kind of thinking because of what it has done for us in the past. Take, for instance, World War II, when the whole nation basically had to become unified behind a singular cause to the point where women were in the workforce, people were rationing their food, all to help this one cause. Can you imagine people giving up their iPhones today to help defeat ISIS or something like that? Uh, I'm going to say no comment. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, you see the point, right? right. And, and this sort of is, is a testament to what has happened to that very strong sense of blue consciousness in the past. We're talking, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. You see the point. Right now, people are much more egocentric. They're not nearly as community oriented. This is a whole different type of consciousness, a much more orange type of consciousness that has taken over our sociological and political landscape but back then you know blue consciousness was the order of the day okay so we were able to defeat the fascists right because we were unified mm -hmm. as a country but we cannot deny the dark side of this kind of thinking the dark side of this feeling of national unity was of course the ones who were excluded because they were not considered part of the group they were scapegoated 
the number one example of that being during that time would be the Japanese who right. were forced into internment camps. Yes, absolutely. Right? Uh-huh. So we defeated the fascists, but back home we had huge problems integrating racial minorities such as the Japanese. African Americans were still dealing with the you know Jim Crow laws in the South. Latinos were dealing with the zoot suit riots and racial prejudice out on the West Coast. You know, so we had a lot of problems here at home that were part of this consciousness. This is the dark side of the blue consciousness. And so we have the light and the dark. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting as I'm, you know, listening to you talk about this, it actually, um, I think, leads in very nicely to the theory that I wanted to discuss as part of today's episode. You know... Many psychologists actually see racism as being more of a cultural problem than a psychological problem. And so, you know, a lot of them will say that there's not really a psychological theory that explains it. Other people think that there is. But, you know, it kind of makes sense to me that it would be more of like a a societal problem because no one is born racist. There's no known gene that contributes to it. It's something that people learn from their family, their friends, right, The, the culture around them. But there are some psychological theories that attempt to explain why prejudice persists. You know, what is it about the human condition that allows us to feel such hatred towards those who are different from us? You know, and to be clear, as I'm talking about this, I want to just point out that these are explanations, not excuses. We can attempt to understand something while still realizing that to engage in prejudicial and racist thoughts and actions are a choice. I think that's important. I think because we talk about this sort of from this detached academic sense, right? But the, the case that we started off with, namely the case of James Byrd Jr., has a very visceral effect on us, I think, on everybody. The amount of hatred that it takes to perpetuate that type of crime. And I think we really have to sort of acknowledge that. Well, and and I think that you and I are both of the school of thought that people are absolutely responsible for their own choices, for their own uh, behaviors, for what they do. Correct. Um, So, you know, what I don't want is for people to hear, you know, us talking about these theories and say, well, if there's a reason, then I don't need to examine this or I don't need to do anything to change it. That's right. That's not at all the message that we are trying to portray. No, it's actually quite the opposite. Right. You know, we have some theories and some reasoning, therefore you need to examine it. That I would totally agree. Also, the theory I'm going to discuss explains how prejudice develops. Now, we are all prejudiced to some extent. And just because a person is prejudiced doesn't mean that they're racist. Racism is prejudice based on a person's race, on their skin color, as you said earlier. And although some racism is extreme, such as what occurred in James Byrd Jr.'s murder, much racism is less overt, I would argue, in our current society. Okay. So, as I said, there's there are different theories out there, but the one that I want to discuss in this episode is what's called terror management theory. And this theory comes from social psychology, but it's based on the work of cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker. This theory helps to explain how we as humans manage the terror associated with being mortal. We are the only mammals self-aware enough to know that we are going to die. We have the ability to contemplate our own deaths, and when we are faced with reminders of our inevitable demise, this has a profound impact on our psyche, even if we're not completely conscious of this impact. Terror management theory posits that our cultural institutions, values, and mores provide meaning to us, and allow us to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. By contributing to this greater purpose, institution, or whatever, it ensures that we will live on in a way after our inevitable death. It also allows us to feel connected and gives us a sense of security and belonging. And I think that that is something that is important to all human beings, right? We're very social creatures, and there's something even arguably from our evolution that makes it so that we want to be with the tribe, so to speak. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. That that is something that has come up in you know my studies in Jungian psychology. Jung's um, theories of individuation or really doing what we need to do as human beings to become true individuals and pursue the things that we really want to pursue in life. 
have to go through this idea of wanting to be part of the tribe. We have to get to a point basically where we get beyond that because it's the tribe. And I've used this a lot in terms of dealing with uh, issues of families and how families can pull us back into roles that no longer serve us because they're comfortable. The reason for that is, and why we get so easily drawn back, I would argue, is because of that sense of safety we have in the tribe. Millennia ago, if we left the safety of the tribe, we were going to get killed by another tribe or we were going to get eaten by some kind of animal. right? So that we still have this very deep-seated need, I think, to be part of this particular group or this tribe when, in fact, to the point where it really can hold us back and does not serve us any longer when we really need to go out into the world and be individuals. Right. I I would agree. But that sense of that desire for security, um, especially when faced with the terror of our own mortality, I think can be very powerful. Sure. And, you know, so terror management theory really focuses a lot on social institutions. But I want to point out that religion also helps to decrease uh, this anxiety about our death. But it's in a more literal way, as most religions believe our souls to be immortal. So that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking more about the the societal factors, social culture. So anyway, when things are going well in society, we may not be confronted with the reality of our own mortality. I don't know about you, but that's not something that I spend my days pondering generally. Not generally, you're right. So um, by the way, being reminded of our mortality is called mortality salience in the research just In case anybody wants to Google it and learn more about it, there have been over 300 uh, research studies conducted examining terror management theory, and there's actually a lot of support for this theory. So when we're not thinking about our death, things just kind of move along. People tend to be happier, less anxious, and to be more connected to others, even those who are different from themselves. However, when we are reminded of our mortality, we tend to become more anxious to cling more tightly to our cultural values, and to show more prejudice against those who are different from us. Now, you might be thinking, what's wrong with clinging to our cultural values? And the answer is that there's nothing wrong with it conceptually. However, the problem occurs with the us versus them mentality. This has been shown to influence people to act more aggressively towards those in the quote-unquote them category. They tend to see outsiders as flawed and as being homogenous, as being all the same. It can also pave the way for people to begin to dehumanize and even demonize those who are not part of their group. And when we tend to be more rigid in our thinking, or other words, clinging very tightly to our beliefs, we tend to have much less tolerance for other viewpoints, even if they're valid. We kind of get these blinders on and engage in very black and white thinking. This either you're with us or against us mentality. Right. Absolutist thinking, which is in substance abuse treatment, something that's considered a thinking error. Yeah, absolutely. In in cognitive um, therapy in general, I would argue. Right. So as I said, when things are going well, we tend to have less terror to manage. The problem is that even though we are actually relatively safe currently in the United States, Compared to other time periods and compared to other countries. So I, you know, I teach at a local university and when we start talking about violence, I always take a poll of my students and I say, you know, how many of you think that we are in more danger of being the victim of a violent crime in this country now than we were in the 1960s and 70s? And guess what? Every student raises their hand pretty much. So then I pull out the actual research and statistics and I have some graphs that show the violent crime rate and the murder rate now versus the 1960s and 1970s. And we're right in that same kind of frequency. So we actually had a a much higher violent crime rate in this country, the highest it's ever been. Uh, was in the mid-1990s. Yeah. And so we're actually a lot safer now than we were when you and I were growing up, David. Right. I remember 1993 was the summer of violence. Uh, That's what they called it. And I know that there was a lot of stuff going on here in Denver. I was a teenager right in the middle of that. I was a junior in high school. And it was kind of a scary time. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting because looking back on it, um, because I was also a teenager in the mid-90s, and 
even though I know, like I have seen the numbers and I know that we're not in more danger now, that we're actually safer now, it feels like things are more dangerous now than they were back then. Right. This this gets back to that idea. You used a word earlier and, uh, you know, I'm going to get to a point made by one of the experts that I looked up online um, when I was doing research for this episode. And it's this idea of salience, which is who is talking about this? What is giving us this feeling of impending doom? And, and it is in huge part because of what we are seeing on the media. Yes. So the advent of the 24-hour news cycle, social media, I mean, I think that those things have really shrunk our world. You know, when we were growing up, there were like, what, maybe four channels on television that you could watch. Right. And like the local news came on at five o'clock. It was a half an hour. Yep. And then the national news came on at 530, another half an hour. And if something wasn't big enough to make either of those programs, you didn't really hear about it. Yeah. And they they had to make choices. What was important enough to make it to cram into 30 minutes of the news, which wasn't even 30 minutes when you added in the commercials and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so and maybe you would catch it in the newspaper the next day. But otherwise, you know, there was so much that had to be cut out because there just wasn't time enough to report on it. Yeah. And then so we contrast that with how things are currently. Now we hear about many more violent acts. Um, We hear about them repeatedly and we hear about them almost instantly, even before they have the facts straight in many cases. So, I mean, a lot of times they'll put stuff out there and then have to retract things or change what they reported. But that's, I mean, that is really the culture that we live in. And I would argue that this has led us to be consistently on high alert, that hypervigilance. And it serves as a constant reminder of our mortality. Right. So then we have this self-perpetuating cycle. We have greater terror about, you know, that we're going to die. This leads us to become more rigid in our beliefs, which increases our prejudice towards others, which then increases conflict. And then when we see this conflict, we experience more terror and so on. So, you know, as people feel more threatened, they go more on the offensive, close ranks more, and are more opposed to those who don't have the same beliefs. Right. And I think this is how we see racism and other types of prejudice become more extreme over time. What may start as something small can grow into something much darker as our anxiety grows. Sure. Yeah. So one of the first points that I would like to make, you know, hopefully without sounding like too much of a crank, you know, because I'm getting older, or, <laughs> you know, sound like, you know, because I don't want to get too political in this. This no. is not a show on politics. But the way psychology and politics interact is very interesting to me. And it's just like you said. So when when you made the comment about, well, you know, a lot of psychologists think that this is a cultural issue. It seems like, but culture is made up of people, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. Right. Cultural studies is what is considered the internal, our internal experience of being who we are within a particular culture. You know, what are our values? What are our feelings, our thinking? Stuff like that, whereas sociology is sort of the outward, if we were to look at it objectively, you know, like a scientist or something like that. Like, how do we organize ourselves? What are our modes of production? Things like that, right? But in terms of that, you know, where psychology and political science sort of intersect, one of the things that that strikes me, you know, when I start thinking about this in a personal sense is the term racist or racism, I think is completely overused in media today i think that it's used to the point where it's become watered down in the sense that you know a lot of these claims that of racism people are being this is racist that's racist and this and that you know are are becoming abstract they're becoming confusing and i think it devalues a true act of racism like the crime that was perpetuated on people like james bird jr so that's just one thing and then i'm i'm speaking as a person of color you know, in this particular case, the, the case of James Byrd Jr., there were very clear and admitted racists and white supremacists who carried out a heinous crime. If I could make an amateur diagnosis, you know, I'm not the expert on psychopathy. You are, Dr. McConnell. Yeah. Right. I would argue that Lawrence Brewer was probably also a psychopath. It, it sounds like, I mean, from what I know about his case and you know what you read earlier and what I've what research I've done on my own it does sound like there were some psycho psychopathic traits there for sure yeah I, I would I would say so you know including that whole ordeal with the the last meal 
you know, the ability, his ability and his, him getting some sense of satisfaction by causing chaos. Right. You know, even killing others. And I think that's an important point is that, you know, people who are higher in psychopathic traits or who are higher in, in sociopathy or who just really don't have a very high regard for human beings might be more drawn to racist uh, ideology. Right. You know, because that then gives them kind of an excuse to act terribly towards other people. Right. But it, what would normally be this very chaotic sort of psychopathic consciousness is now sort of directed towards one particular group of people. Yeah, or I a can couple see that. different. Sure. Yeah, right? Sure. So in this case, it seems that, you know, you know, if I had to take a look at this, John King was the one that was motivated by a hatred for African Americans. John King or Brewer? John King. Okay, okay. Right. Brewer was the psychopath. I think Brewer was the ringleader. Uh-huh. Right. Even though they said that John King might have been the ringleader. But John King was much younger. You know, and I think John King was really sort of looking for a way to solidify his position and showcase his admiration for Brewer, who was the older of the two. But that's just speculation at this yeah. point. Right? Okay. So at any rate, this turned into a modern day lynching, completely representative of this Civil War era vigilante justice where poor blacks were targeted for all manner of crimes, usually without any proof, no trial or due process. This is an undeniable part of our nation's dark history. So what drives this kind of hatred? You know, I read an article that I thought was really interesting that teased out the, the separation between white nationalism, which has been getting a lot of press lately, versus racism. While many may think that these are synonymous, political scientist Ashley Jardina was able to differentiate these two things, which goes a long, a long way toward explaining why so many white nationalists do not consider themselves racist. Oh, this will be interesting because, I, I mean, I feel like they're often thrown around, like you said, as being synonyms. Sure. No, no question about it. Um, the long short is that a racist has a strong feeling of prejudice towards others. You know, somebody who is people who are not like them. Someone who is a white nationalist uh, has a very strong sense of racial identity for their own race, but does not necessarily rank high in terms of racial prejudice. Jardina states that while these concepts are correlated, the overlap between them is not as significant as we might think they are. So I started thinking about these concepts in terms of why it does not sit well with me when the term racist is so quickly used as an attack towards someone else. It's been my experience that the types that generally like to throw around this term have never really been the target of true racism and are using the term as a sort of ad hominem attack against someone whose politics or ideas they don't generally like. It's a very effective way of marginalizing ideas to label them racist these days. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think that that happens a lot. Yeah, and I think it's completely overdone. I think it's overused. Having been in the past on the receiving end of truly racist acts, I think that to use that term is overkill. Okay, yeah. You know, for a, in a lot of the ways that it's used. Let me give you an example of what Jardina is talking about from my own experience working with men in prison where racial identity, um, as most can imagine, takes on a different meaning than it does in the general public. So I had a guy approach me for help with his drug issues, which is what I do. You know, I, I help men establish lives of recovery and um, hopefully so they can reenter back into society and stay out of prison. This guy was a nice enough guy. He was polite. He's reasonably intelligent. He's easy to get along with and seemed in real distress over his multiple failures to kick methamphetamine out of his life. Basically, the perfect candidate for treatment, right? Sounds like it. Okay, so there was a one little issue. He was a complete and total white supremacist. Yeah. So, okay. So what do I mean by that? Well, aside from the overtly racist tattoos, he had a very in-depth ideology that was completely rooted in a very Nazi-esque ideas of master race, Jews being parasites, the inability of whites and blacks to ever coexist, etc. He didn't last long in the program. Part of that, though, was his inability to understand how his irrational thinking, including these beliefs, served to perpetuate a number of other issues in his life. The interesting thing was that he I never really identified himself as a racist. He identified himself as a white nationalist and a supremacist for sure, but not a racist. He got along with everybody else, including many men of different colors and different backgrounds. And the other inmates sort of knew, quote unquote, what kind of time he was on. And they didn't, you know, so to speak, they didn't bother him and he didn't bother them. So he wasn't like getting into conflicts or doing stuff to try to oppress or get one over on the other 
the the inmates of color. Correct. Or staff of color, for that matter. Correct. He, okay. He, he wasn't generally, you know, out to start a bunch of trouble. Okay. okay. Interesting. So the so this guy, right? And I I had numerous conversations with him. I worked with him a little bit before he wound up leaving the program, because we really started to challenge him on some of these ideas, and he just he couldn't handle it. Got very uncomfortable. You know, didn't think that he should have to do some of the things that we were asking in terms of his treatment and decided to leave. Okay. Now juxtapose that with some very liberal, you know, middle-class types that I've encountered in academia, in the workplace. I've experienced this on more than one occasion. Some of the most intelligent, quote-unquote, intelligent people who are very proud of their high-minded political values and their carbon footprint and their voting records, etc., have been some of the most covertly prejudiced. These are the types who love to tell you about the latest cause um, that they're into, but are noticeably uncomfortable when they're stuck on an elevator with you. I had this experience once um, when my ex-wife and I were accidentally stuck next to some other couples at a sushi restaurant that happened to be full at the time. The waiter made the mistake of thinking we were with another party and sat us next to them at this long table. We were in Mexico, so we were having trouble communicating with the waiter. So he sat us down next to these other people. And these people made it painfully obvious that they did not appreciate us sitting there. While at the same time, they were patting themselves on the back, having this conversation with some of their other friends about being so hipster woke or whatever it is you want to call it. The group's conversation just sort of smacked of this very self-serving condescension. There are also, these are also the types who like to throw around language like racism, having never been the victim of racism themselves. They're usually high-minded, they're educated, they tend to be very pretentious, and they tend to be moneyed. People like this would probably never claim to be anything even remotely akin to white nationalists. But this is the issue, right? This is where this whole issue becomes personal for me as a person of color. I can tell you that I can sit in my office with the first example, mm-hmm. right? The guy who was an admitted... White supremacist. White supremacist and a racist. You know, he he did not claim racism, but oh, an admitted white supremacist. And I can have conversations with him, you know, all day long. We can go back and forth and we can talk and we can explore these different ideas. This next type, these very high-minded, sort of pretentious, but very covertly prejudiced type people annoy the hell out of me. I have a very difficult time dealing with those types of people. Well, because it's kind of slippery. I mean, I feel like with the first guy, you knew exactly where he was coming from. Right. There was no question about it in your mind. And so I don't know about you, but for me, I think it's easier to deal with something when I know exactly what it is. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you as well. I think that, okay, now we can have a conversation now that I know where you stand. You know, and that may be a product of working in the prison system for... Oh, you know, 16 years now that I'm not quite as affected by that kind of overt aggression. Well, and you said he also wasn't overtly aggressive towards you. Right. It was it was like you were able to you knew that he had these beliefs. He was able to have a discussion about them in a way that you, I mean, did you ever feel like he was condescending to you? When no, you, no, not okay. at all. As a matter of fact, I think that we had that sort of very sort of maybe not strange but a very interesting sort of respect for one another he respected my position he respected my intelligence and you know i respected his even though we vehemently disagreed on a number of these these topics i find that much easier to deal with i think than the second example (laughs) well because it also brings it out into the light and i feel like you know it's easy to dislike people when you just kind of see them as all being the same and part of this other group. But once you start to have personal relationships and experiences with somebody that is part of that group, it's a lot harder to hold on to those um, extreme beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Definitely. When we take the time to actually get to know each other, have conversations, really tease out ideas, things like that. But you have to then kind of be honest about where you're coming from right and i think that that's the key point you know because i mean i went to school i grew up very close to boulder right up the road here and went to school there and there is a significant amount of what i would call racial prejudice going on there it's just very very covert and i think that that's the part that really bothers me the most well because yeah how do you address that there it is right 
especially when it's under the skies of being so enlightened politically or so uh, open-minded. Right. So, so that's a personal sort of take on, you know, and uh, to add some more layers to this discussion, um, Jardina makes a couple other points that I found interesting when discussing this issue. And I think um, that we should chat about, she found that, that those who tend to be in the white nationalist camp are not, the type of people that we necessarily associate with them. Um, this is a general misconception. They're not very poor and they're not always from rural areas. You know, we have this idea of white nationalists being a bunch of hillbillies with very little money living somewhere, quote, out there, usually on a compound in Idaho or something like that. You know, this is a general misconception we have about white nationalists, that they're a bunch of hillbillies with very little money living somewhere, quote, unquote, out there, usually, you know, on a compound in Idaho or something like that, right? In fact, many who claim a strong identification to the white race are, in fact, middle class. They're homeowner types, or as Jardina states, they tend to look a lot like other white people. They have a decent economic base. What is interesting about this group of people, Jardina states, is that they are people who are disproportionately not college educated. I found that really interesting. There's something about attending college that changes a person's likelihood of becoming a white nationalist type. This was interesting to me because I've heard a college education described in this way. It's not really what you learned in terms of knowledge, but how you grew as a person. I would definitely say that was the case for me. You know, I probably couldn't tell you a lot of what I learned from books and stuff like that in college, but I could tell you what it meant to me in terms of my own personal growth. Well, and I think it gets back to what I was saying uh, earlier that, you know, when, when kids go to college, a lot of times that's the first time that they're really leaving home. Right. Um, and that they may be exposed to people who are different from them. Either that people who look different, who are from other parts of the country, who have different experiences, who have different beliefs. And so, I, I you know, and, and as we talked about, having the opportunity to have real conversations and relationships with people who are different from yourself... Uh, tends to make people like them more. Right. And you start having these relationships with people who are not like you. And it, it increases your ability to tolerate gray area or ambiguity. Yeah, I would agree. This sort of idea that, you know, we're all human beings. And for the most part, we all want the same sort of things, right? So this helps defeat, you know, going to college and having this experience helps to defeat the absolutist black and white or us versus them mentality that is often very present in white nationalist types. Well, and I wonder even if somebody doesn't go to college, if there are other experiences that also, you know, foster that. Like I wonder about people who go into the military and then go and serve in areas that are different from where they grew up in or serve with people who are different from whom who they grew up with. That's a very good question. I think you just touched on a uh, possible research yeah, I'll, I'll have to look into that and see if there's been any research. But I wonder, because if it's not about what you learn in college, but about that experience, I wonder if other experiences like that have a similar effect. Yeah. So the second point that Jardina makes is the idea of racial politics becoming more important in the national discussion because of how many people are actually talking about it. We, we touched on this a little bit earlier in the episode where we talked about what is happening in media. So in other words, it seems like white nationalists and racism, it's everywhere right now. This has a lot to do with the media portrayal of these issues and the extent to which people are talking about it. In fact, white nationalism has always been around. It's just now that they're receiving much more press due to the, the current political landscape. So whether or not you believe that President Trump is himself a white nationalist or racist is sort of beside the point. What has happened is that those who were already white nationalists or racists or both have suddenly been thrust into the spotlight, making it seem that there has been some kind of rise in this thinking slash behavior. But what Jardina found is that this really isn't the case. It's just that we're paying way more attention to these kind of people now more than before. Thank you, politics, right? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that gets back to the media and who's talking about this, right? So believe it or not, I've really argued this from the beginning. Um, the case of James Byrd Jr. happened in 1998, obviously way before the era of Trump. Many times when you are a person of color, and a lot of times even if you're not, you are very aware and sensitive to incidents like this. Matthew Shepard was another example that um, was linked to James Byrd Jr. in terms of the impact both incidents had 
when it came to drafting new laws on how cases like this were prosecuted. Right, right. You know, the skinhead movement was here, was alive and well here in Denver in the 90s to include the year that the Martin Luther King riot happened, or the Martin Luther King Day riot happened in 1992 when the KKK clashed with counter-protesters. And that was a big deal here in Denver. Um, We have always witnessed these kinds of events alluding to problems with race relations in this country. So most people of color, I would argue, have always been hyper-aware that there are people who will dislike you or hate you because you are a different race, you're a different ethnicity, you're a different sexual orientation, you're a different religion, maybe because you're disabled, whatever. It's just now that they feel, people who will discriminate against you feel more emboldened to be open about it. And everyone is talking about it in the news, you know, your neighbors are talking about it. But racial violence has always been a problem. It used to be that racial hatred groups would spring up, they would make some headlines, then they would crawl back under whatever rock they came out of, and we would stop legitimizing them by not talking about them. In other words, we did not really take them seriously. We accepted that these fringe groups existed, but they were holed up on some some compound out in Idaho. They were marginalized. But now it seems that these groups have been given a sense of legitimacy based on how much attention they've garnered. So in the end, I would argue that, you know, this, what we're seeing is a very arrested and virulent form of consciousness that seems to be where racist thinking comes from. At its heart, I believe the Buddhist idea of violence being a manifestation of suffering. So you and I watched a special not too long ago on Netflix. I don't know if you remember where they were interviewing people who were once associated with white nationalists, white supremacists. Yeah, yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, the the one thing that struck me was when they interviewed the former skinhead guy who was um, also used to be in a band and everything and they would sing racist stuff. He made a statement that was just fascinating and I think that really gets to the crux of what it is we're talking about. And he says, you know what, when I see young men engaging in that kind of behavior these days, I see right through to their suffering. And this really sort of touches on what you were talking about, sort of getting to know people on a very human level. This is where this sort of academic approach to this topic becomes very, very personal and becomes very humanized. You see the suffering in other kinds of people. And in the case that you were talking about in terms of terror management theory, right? The suffering is this anxiety of our impending doom. Right. Right. And what we do out of this kind of suffering, we lash out at others, right? We direct our anger, our feelings of anxiety out at these other people that we scapegoat. right? Exactly. In, instead of turning inside And really examining where is this coming from in me? This isn't something that is being caused out, you know, by things outside of me. This is something going on inside of me. And I think that that's really the challenge here. And I thought that that when this former skinhead made that statement, it just, it really resonated with me. You know, there is a tremendous amount of suffering going on. And really what we would be advised to do is to try to understand the suffering of people who act out in this way. You know, I don't think that somebody like, you know, Lawrence Brewer, that this would work with somebody like that because I believe that he was a psychopath to begin with. But I think that when it comes to the white nationalist movement and a lot of the political landscape, you know, the political back and forth that's been going on, I think that we really do need to take some time to try to understand each other more rather than just kind of preaching at each other right. or, or trying. Because I, I would argue the same thing. I mean, I, I think that people a lot of times say that they want to have a conversation, but then they don't actually have a conversation. It just turns into, you know, one person trying to convince the other person why they're wrong right. or, or becomes, telling them that they're wrong. It becomes a vilification. Exactly. And and I think what you find is that, you know, when you actually sit down and talk with somebody, every person has reasons for thinking and acting the way that they do. And I think that it's important for us to understand those reasons, even if we don't agree with them, because I think that that's really a starting place where we can start to, you know, make some changes. Right. But just vilifying or really hunkering down and clinging more to these very um, black and white ideas, it really doesn't work. Well, you know, I mean, getting back to the, the, the guy who was who tried to get into the drug abuse program that I work in, you know, I think that one of the things that maybe he respected about me in particular was that I actually took the time to listen to him. Well, and I hope that 
that interaction that you had with him did do something to change his mind. I mean, you you just never know what is going to be that aha moment. Right. But I think the fact that you didn't automatically dismiss him and call him evil or call him a racist, even if that was, you know, some of his ideology was kind of consistent with that, I think perhaps that made a difference. And perhaps that is why he respected you. Yeah, maybe so. And maybe, you know, maybe it won't change his mind anytime soon, but maybe there was a seed that was planted. We hope so. That'll come to fruition, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I know that we could probably talk for hours about this subject alone, as there's so much more to say, but we should probably wrap this episode up. We have some additional information on the discussion page on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. David and I really want to thank you all for listening. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on your preferred listening app and tell your friends about us. And finally, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskis, both provided by Gemendo.